If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Matthew 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. If not, we have Bibles in the pew, so you can grab a pew Bible, Matthew 11. That's in the second half. Well, actually, probably like last fifth of the Bible. So you can flip there. We're going to look at, and I encourage you to keep it open because we're going to look at this text a fair amount and a little bit of stuff that's around it. So this is Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. God's word again to us this morning. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we be looking for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Father, as we listen to these words, we need for you to allow, cause your spirit to move in us, to take these words that were written and penned so long ago that had very particular meaning at the time. We need for your spirit to apply that to us today. We are all here at different places, different stages of life. Some of us come celebrating. Some of us come in confusion and pain and uncertainty. So wherever it is that we are, Spirit, please come and move through us and show us the Son we ask in your name. Amen. So, how do you know who you are and what you are supposed to do in life? I know no one has ever asked that question. When you ask the question, it's not only an individual question, because it is, it's also a corporate question. Who are we and what is it that we're supposed to do? We tend to derive what it is that we think of ourselves and therefore what we do from what we believe about what we're looking at. What we believe about what or who it is that we are following. If you watch little kids and um, with their, especially around their parents, or maybe you have little kids, and you watch how they play and how they interact, what do you often see in those little ones? Who who do you see a reflection of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not always the prettiest thing, is it? Uh, So one of my my daughters, my number two, when she was two years old, Fran had to correct me after the first service um, with some of this story. When she was two years old, she'd gotten in trouble, and which was a common occurrence. (laughs) Um, Fran told her to go to her room. And so my two-year-old daughter put her hands on her hips, and she said, No, Mommy, you go to your room. (laughs) I don't know where she learned that from, right? (laughs) Who you follow, who you look at has a deep impact on what you think of yourselves and then how you live your life, what you do. Therefore, growing to actually know the one you follow is pretty important if you want to know who you are. So if you, are, if you are a follower of Jesus or if you are considering following Jesus, it's really a good idea to actually know who he is, not just what you think he might be. So how do we know him? Well, that's part of what's being addressed in this particular text. So as we look at this text, I want us to examine this, this fact. 
Look at what Jesus has to say. That the mission of Jesus actually reveals his identity. From which we derive our identity and then discern our mission. Okay, kind of a big idea that we're going to walk through. So to know this, to walk through this, you need to see what does he do? Well, it kind of falls out. Like there are three things that kind of happen that just kind of fall out of this text. So we're going to look at these three things, and they are, what does he do? He, he moves towards people, he challenges our beliefs, and then he restores wholeness to the humbled. And if you have a bulletin, they're in the bulletin, and then we're going to walk through each of these. So f- first, verse 1 When Jesus had finished instructing his 12, he went out from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So Jesus had already called the 12 disciples. If you flip back a page, you see at the beginning of chapter 10 where he's called them, and they give a list of the 12 guys, and then he sends them out. He gives them instructions generally of what to go, where to go, and then what to do. So then he gives some instructions before they go out, after which they apparently go out, and then he follows after them. They were like kind of the next phase of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was the one crying in the wilderness, making the way of the Lord, right? So these guys are the new generation of John the Baptist. Before we get into John's question of, are you really the guy? Because that's John's question. What do we see about who Jesus is right here? This is what we see. He goes to people. He moves toward people. This is a a very basic thing. It's actually a pretty profound thing, and it has implications to how we are to live life. But I think there's something more going on, kind of a continuation of a key biblical theme that is helpful for us to consider as we try to understand who Jesus is. So I want to back up a few pages in the Bible. For me, it's 816 pages to the beginning. In the beginning... God breathed into existence all that we see. And his spirit hovered, it said, over the creation to shape it and to form it and to bring order to it. And last of all, he came and he breathed life into the nostrils of his creational climax, which is what? Yeah, you. Humanity, what was called Adam. We call him Adam, the beginning of this human race, at which point God lived in this good, healthy relationship with the man and then the woman where it seems he regularly came to them. And in some ways, part of the story in chapter 3 says he walked with them in the cool of the day. I don't fully know what that looked like, but I know it was real and it was an intimate presence. So as the story unfolds, we see that the first man and the woman, they choose to pull away They sever their relationship with the one who made them. But even with that, so we pull away, God refuses, therefore, after that, to abandon them, which I would say refuses to abandon us. He comes to many over the ages as the story unfolds until finally he comes to a guy named Abram, who he later names Abraham. And he enters into this thing called a covenant, which is really like a marriage He enters into almost a marriage relationship with Abram, saying, I want to bless you so that through you I can bless the world. I want to come to you and be with you so that I can go to and be with the world. From here, over many generations, a nation grows up and God sets them apart. He gives them a kind kind of rules of engagement. He establishes a tent, a tabernacle, 
that in time becomes also a temple. You familiar with this part of the story? So this temple and this tabernacle are established. This is a place for God to come to his people, a place where God's space and human space intersect. And it's a model of what the whole world is supposed to be. It's kind of a a primitive image of what had existed originally with creation. The temple is like a recapturing of what had been, where God could come to us and where we were free to walk with him that time. The problem was then and for us now, we needed some kind of a mediation, some kind of a cleansing because we had turned inward. We'd lost access, but God was pursuing access yet again. So why, why say all this? Why go through that story? Because every movement of Jesus from entering the human race to entering cities is a part of his mission. It's a part of him fulfilling God's promise and God's desire to come to us, to live with us. It's much bigger than just a man walking into a city. In light of this, who is Jesus? He is the tabernacle prefigured. What what was prefigured in the tabernacle, Jesus now is God come to us. And this isn't something we're just reading into the text. This is how Matthew started his book because he named Jesus, he, he quotes an Old Testament passage, and he calls him Emmanuel, which means God, God with us. This is, he's already titled Jesus with this. Jesus is now living this out. And I know this can sound like maybe we're stretching it, but consider the larger context of who he is. He is God moving to us. This is what God had been working toward for a long time. It's what he wants. It's what we need. He wants to be with us. Then we get into verses 2 and 3. Jesus gets interrupted. So he's about to head out, follow his guys, and it says this. Now when John heard in prison, because he was in prison, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? So I imagine John's thinking, are you the one sent from God? He's thinking, are you like Moses? Are you like David? Right, right. Are you like one of the the prophets who could come and rule and to rescue? Because I'm not sure. I'm putting this in John's mind, and it may not, in his mouth, it may not be completely fair. But I think he's asking because he's probably thinking, Jesus, you're not really focusing on the right thing. That's a possibility. He's questioning What is John's perspective? Well, it's hard to fully know, but Matthew chapter 3 actually elaborates more of where John's coming from. We see John announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so he calls people to repent. And for whatever reason, people are going to him, and they're confessing, and they're repenting, and they're being baptized. And John, he's this harsh prophet. He's like all the ones that have basically come before him. He's, He's not meek and mild, He's a hard guy. He calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers. He says things like, even now an axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire to be consumed. I baptize you with water and with repentance, for repentance. But somebody else is coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he has a pitchfork in his hand by which he's going to clear the threshing floor and the chaff, chaff, he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, John sees the coming one as good. 
but a dangerous judge who is coming to set things right. And I'm guessing he's expecting Jesus to carry on what he began. Just ramp it up, right? Let's add a little fuel to that fire. I started it. Let's keep it going. So when Jesus doesn't quite fit the expectation, John understandably has questions and he has doubts. He should have doubts. He should have questions. In addition, John himself is in prison, and he's probably wondering, look, this isn't quite what I pictured with me being the one crying in the wilderness, making the way of the Lord. I thought maybe I'd, you know, not have my mouth shut, thrown into a prison. He's probably, again, I don't know what's going on in his mind, but this is what I would be thinking. It's understandable, because when we go through things that don't turn out like we want, things don't turn out the way that we think that they should turn out, do we have questions? Yes, we do. We identify with this. Reality is, Jesus is a challenge to John's beliefs, to his faith. Jesus turns it upside down, but he also allows him to come closer. He invites John and his disciples and everybody who hears him, including us right now as we sit here, to listen and to see who he really is by what he does. Not, not just to believe because somebody told you to believe, not believe because, or pretend like you believe because you're in some building, like where, you're t- where he's being talked about. He wants, us, he wants us to know him for who he actually is, that maybe he's different than what we thought. Maybe he's even greater than what we believed, maybe. So John gets part of the picture, but it's not complete is the point I think Jesus is making. So Jesus challenges his beliefs and his perspectives and his interpretations, his fine interpretations of Scripture. Jesus is turning this thing upside down by asking him to look again, to look a little closer, to consider more deeply, not not to move away from the old part of the story, but actually to go back to it and look at how it unfolded that might indeed be climaxing in who Jesus is. He's inviting him to do this. So maybe you are asking similar questions. What do I believe? Who who is Jesus? Is he really the one to come? Or what does that even mean, he's the one to come? Maybe we should be asking those questions. Is Jesus really who we think he is? Or is he actually something else, something more? Have we created images of what we think he should be and what we want him to be? And are we willing maybe to step back or better yet, step forward and let him tell us who he is as opposed to us telling him who he should be? Might there be places where we have formed our own images and we've deified those images? God calls that idolatry. Causing us to miss him and to misinterpret major aspects of who he is. Is that a possibility of what we are doing as individuals and maybe even as a community of people? Is that a possibility? Um, Fran and I celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary last week. My oldest child is 23. Okay, 27 years, and we were we were away. Somebody allowed us to go to their place, which was wonderful. And um, I brought up. Uh, a, a place where we had a little um, a point of tension prior to us going. We didn't have tension while we were there. Prior to us going, it had been something that happened the week before. A point of tension. Now, Fran and I have had fights, okay? I'm not 
elaborating on those at this point. But this, this wasn't a fight, it was just a point of tension. And I, I brought it up because I wanted to kind of make sure I was clear, because I'm pretty sure I knew what I had done wrong. And I brought this up. <laughs> I brought this up, and she very great, and we, we had a conversation about this. This was, it was actually a beautiful moment. We had a conversation about it, and as she explained what she was actually feeling, what she'd actually experienced, I realized I had completely misunderstood her. I completely, you laugh as if, <laughs> completely misunderstood what she was experiencing in that moment of tension. And as a result, as we had this conversation, I learned something new about her, which brought me a a deeper understanding of who she is and a deeper appreciation of who she is. My beliefs about her had to be challenged so that I could repent, like turn from false belief, give up my skewed belief and my misinterpretation and have a greater understanding form that actually drew me closer to her. Can you identify? As we live life and we read scripture and we grow to know the one who comes, our beliefs will be challenged. That can be a very scary thing. But when we draw closer to his drawing closer, he will in time help us better know him and his mission. Who is he? He is the one that will frustrate you. He is the one that comes to challenge what you believe so that he can form a better belief, form a greater, greater trust. So then we move into verses four through six. Okay, what does Jesus say to tell John about whether he's the guy? Well, go tell John what you hear and you see, he says. Well, what is that? Well, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In typical fashion, Jesus does not give a straight answer. When does Jesus ever give a straight answer? And you know what? I love this because I get accused very frequently of not answering questions. Jim, stop shaking your head. Yes. (laughs) Jim accuses me of that frequently. And my reason usually is I don't know the answer and I want to look cool. (laughs) Um, uh, But the reality is, right? Sometimes a straight answer is not what we need. Um, Why might that be important? You know, why is it maybe good for us? Well, It grows curiosity, it prompts us to investigate, it causes a conversation to unfold. Jesus usually, if not always, wants us to see and to hear and to know more than what we are asking. Okay, so what he does, we ask a question, we want the answer, so we package it. Jesus hears our question, he says, I want so much more for you than what you're asking, so I'm not going to answer you directly. That's why he does this. This is why he engages in this relationship with us. So his response to John's friends is to answer with stories, rehearsing what they had already seen and what they had heard, which is what? Again, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news news preached to them. This is great stuff. Jesus is really cool, isn't he? Look at all the cool stuff that he's doing. What's so important about this? Well... Jesus' response, I doubt, would have been fully understood at the time. Matthew's writing this years later with much more understanding than the immediate literary audience would have understood. 
At the same time, I think this is one of those that we may forever be unpacking. Like, Matthew has a better understanding, we have a better understanding, but I think there's more to always understand. At face value, it's simple. Jesus was physically doing these things to testify to who he was. And yet, there seems to be multiple layers to this. It was, it was him living out his mission and giving us a sneak peek of a greater mission, I propose. How, how is it that you would summarize what he's doing here? What, what would you say? Good news, okay, of what? And a, open the eyes, yes, yeah, right? Heart. Reversing the fall. Who said that? That was good. Well done. Like that, yeah. Reversing the fall. And it's actually up on the screen, too, so I cheated. I put it up before I ask you. It's restoration. It's reversing the fall. Isn't it a restoration? I mean, isn't that what's happening? He's restoring wholeness to people, and he's restoring wholeness even beyond people to creation. So maybe you could look at it as as a set of two. Why can't I say that? It's a set with three in each set. That's, That's not two sets. That's one set, right? No, it's two sets. Two sets of three. It's two sets of three. Look at what he does. The blind and the deaf, right? They have their senses restored, don't they? Um, The lame and the dead rise up. They have mobility restored, ability restored. Um, The lepers and the poor have good news preached to them. What is that? Position and status restored. So there's there's so much to this, like without going too deep into this, um, Jesus is not just Uh, This is what I want to just take away, okay? There's a lot more to take away. Jesus is not just about saving souls for heaven. It's not really what he's doing here. His mission is restoration of the whole person and the whole of creation. It's massive. But all this restoration that was partially realized then and is still continually being partially realized right now, he's still doing these things, And he will fully make this a reality on some future day, okay? This is all the result of something very simple, which is what? Well, how does any of this happen? I mean, what what makes this happen? It's by him drawing near to those who are humbled. I mean, it's kind of simple. The restoration happens by him drawing near to those that are humbled. The ones who enjoy and will enjoy restoration, wholeness, are those, he says in verse 6, if you look at verse 6, they're the happy ones. They're the blessed ones. They're those who are not offended by him. What does that mean? What does it mean? I don't take that to mean he never offends you because I think Jesus offends everybody. I, th- I think if you haven't been offended by Jesus, I, don't, I would question if you've even met him. He's offensive. He challenges and he frustrates all of our beliefs. It's, it's how you grow. It's how you grow in your marriage. It's how you grow in relationship to him. So what is this? Rather, I think not being offended by him is not allowing our frustration and, and his challenge to keep us from trusting. Not being offended by him requires believing he is in his way are actually better than what we thought before. We may not be sure how, but it's actually trusting that his way is actually better. The the, the idea, I think, is don't be offended and turn away. Instead, turn to him and you'll be blessed. 
You won't ultimately miss out. Ultimately, you will be happier and more whole than you could imagine. This is what he promises. Even when you're not sure how it's going to happen, it's about him doing it. It's not about you figuring it out. So for me, the question rises, how in the world does Jesus do this restoration stuff? Like, how does he actually do it? Well, one is power. We come to him humbled and broken, and he is the one who actually restores. It's his power. He has power to do it. That's an important piece. Two, follow up on what Brian Myers was talking about last week. He cares. He has compassion. He chooses, he even desires to heal and to restore. That's what he is choosing to do in this text. Because he loves, because he has this compassion. It's who he is as the one to come. Yet, I think there's this, so those are two things, right? He's got power and he cares, he has compassion. Yet, there's a bigger story that Jesus is acting out that I doubt anyone would have understood until a few years later after this event. Jesus understood himself to be the one who is to come, From God, the Messiah, the Christ, the rescuing king, the one who's going to bring the kingdom of God. These are all things that he's kind of talked about. With that, he seems to understand he is what Matthew has already declared him to be, Emmanuel, God with us. He is God come to us, and as we've said earlier, he is the better tabernacle, remember that? The better temple, the better that better tent where God met with his people. All right, so if if that is true. If we're tying these things together, if that's true, then he has to do the work of the temple. What happens in the temple over and over again, year after year, day after day? What happens in the temple? Sacrifices are made. Sacrifices were made that were to cover and to wash people so that they could have some kind of an access to God who is holy and pure and good, right? It's a little, it's a little entryway. It's a foot in the door to access with God. The sacrifices that allowed God to tabernacle and to be present with his people, Israel in the Old Testament, had to therefore be taken on by Jesus. As Jesus moved toward people and was present, the presence of God with them, he, he, he touched them. It wasn't from a distance. He actually touched them in their sickness and in their sin and in their unwholeness, he engaged with the unholy. And as he identified with them, because that's what he's doing, he's identifying with them in this way, it's almost like he is absorbing what separated them from God and from each other, what caused their unwholeness. He's, it's almost like he's taking it on. The weight of their guilt is almost like he's taking it on. In doing so, he was not only the presence of God with the people, he was preparing himself to be the substitutionary sacrifice of God for the people. He would become what the spotless lamb had represented for generations, only now he was the real deal. All those years, he was the real deal. Everything before him had just been a shadow, it had been a forerunner. Jesus is God's greater personal tabernacling present with us because he is the greater personal sacrificial substitute for us. And I know this is is strange stuff, okay? So if this is kind of new to you, I get this. This sounds kind of crazy. It's hard to get our mind around it. I'm personally still trying to get it. There's so much of this that's still fuzzy. This is why we 
keep learning, right? We keep going to it. I think my belief about this is continuing to be challenged. But as we think on it, even, even if we're having a hard time with this idea, let it at least provoke us to keep looking closer. Not to look away. Look closer. And I know some of us are struggling with this. I mean, I personally know some of us are struggling with this. Because whatever it is that Jesus is doing, okay, the magnitude of what he would accomplish a few years later at the crucifixion, right? This is leading towards the crucifixion. Whatever all this is, this, is, this, seems, this seems kind of basic. This is clear. He wasn't doing it for himself. It's a work for us so that he could be present with us and come to us with forgiveness to restore wholeness to us in our senses, in our abilities, and in our position. To be heirs of God and children of God and kings and baby little priests of God and and micro-creators on God's behalf and cultivators for the world. So Jesus is not walking around with us right now in the same way he did with these people. Does that therefore mean we, get, we miss out? That's a fair question to ask. He had a plan for the time that we're in right now. And I know this doesn't maybe sound as exciting in some ways, but he says, the plan I have is good. It's actually better than what the disciples experienced at first because this is how I'm choosing to live out my mission toward you and in you and through you. And what is that way? What is the way? Well, he moves towards us. It's what we've heard over and over again. If you've been in the church long, he moves towards us by his spirit intimately, not just by you, into you. There's something even greater. He moves towards us with his word in a community of people that are centering on him, that are struggling together, that are asking the questions around him. He's moving through us trusting who he is and what he's accomplished, resting. This is why we need to be with each other, be in prayer together, be around his word, not just to read it as a piece of literature, but to read it as the words of life. so that we can wrestle with the story. Even doubt, let it raise doubts. He's big enough to handle the doubts. It's okay. And we do all this while we move into the city. We don't do it and then figure it out and then move into the city. We move into the city. We move towards people while we are struggling through these things because that is what he has restored us to do and to be, to live as his body to go into our schools and our neighborhoods and to serve on our, in our city by serving individuals, by serving your individual people, particular needs. And as his followers, as his learners, we're given opportunities to pray for, like to, like to talk to God about the needs that we see, and then to physically work for restoration of senses and abilities and positions for the world around us literally working to see sight return to the blind and hearing to the deaf. For those who have been cast out, to work for their cleansing and to draw them back into positions of respect and honor. If he has done that for us, this is what we are now given the privilege to go and do on his behalf for others. 
The implications for this are huge. This is like forever we will, this is like a floodgate. This reality that we now live in, this impacts how we go out and serve our world. It defines who we are and it defines what we do. And this isn't some new plan that Jesus started when he just showed up. This is the original plan. Which is what? Restoration to our original design for us to be as image bearers in the world, to live in conversation, to walk with him in the cool of the day as we serve and we cultivate and are fruitful and creative and we work for the restoration of the world around us and we grow to do this by deriving our identity and discerning our mission from the one who comes to us and who challenges us and who restores us. Father, as we hear these words and we read this account, Lord, there's so much in this that's just a, it's a capstone for so much more, and we, we need for your Spirit to press it into us and help us even, Lord, to, to even go, f- want to encounter you right now in this moment. And then as we're encountering you, to have conversations around this. Who are you? What does this mean? How are we being challenged? And as you're challenging us and reforming our beliefs to be more aligned with who you actually are, that we would go forth to serve a world as we've been served by our King. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.